0: At Seek Safely, it's our mission to empower seekers to have a safe and meaningful self-improvement journey.
1: Why do we care? Seeking to be your best self is an amazing, beautiful human impulse that has led us to create art, invent technology, tell amazing stories, and reach the moon.
0: But we saw the dark side of self-help in 2009 when a recklessly run self-improvement retreat led to the death of three people including my sister, Kirby
1: Brown. We want people to seek, to dream their big dreams and chase their beautiful goals, but we want to make sure they're safe along the way.
0: This podcast is about education and empowerment and getting real about the promises and problems of self-help.
1: We talk with people who understand and care about the self-help industry and everyone it touches.
0: I'm Jean Brown.
1: I'm Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle. And And this is is the Seek Seek Safely Podcast.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Seek Safely Podcast. It's Jean here. We're doing something a little bit differently for this episode. We are so excited to bring you another guest interview. I am speaking with Jennifer French, a psychologist who studies coercive control and works with cult survivors and their families. For this conversation, it was just Jennifer and I, but we don't want to leave Dr. Glenn out, of course. After the interview, Dr. Glenn will jump in to chat with me about the interview and share his perspective. Enjoy. Welcome to the Seek Safely podcast. And I'm joined today by Jennifer French. And Jennifer has had some unique experiences in her life that she is now sharing through her own podcast, the Project Hope podcast. And she has taken her experiences and really built her life and her work around them. So welcome, Jennifer.
2: Thanks so much, Jean. It's such a pleasure to be
0: here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. So I wonder if you can just explain for us briefly a little bit about you and the work that you do.
2: Yes. So I am a coercive control expert. I have a master's in that field. I work primarily with survivors of coercive control and have a specialty really predominantly in the area of cult and religious abuse, so things that are kind of getting more into these spiritual ideas and concepts, and I also am a researcher. I'm a research associate at Salford University, and so I have conducted research on the topic, basically blending areas of passion of mine. So I'm a level two trained internal family systems practitioner. And so my research has combined those who self-identify as having been coercively controlled and have also received internal family systems, Counseling and kind of what the impact and exploring that for those particular, that particular group of survivors. And my research will definitely continue to be within the realm of coercive control.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because. I know just from our experience with SEEK, a lot of times we want to be referring to research and it doesn't exist, (laughs) you know, or the, the data is not there that we would like to be able to reference. So I'm so happy that more and more people, I think, are starting to actually do this kind of research and inquiry into this area. So that's amazing.
2: Yes. Thanks for acknowledging that, Jean. And it's funny because I actually did have the thought to speak to you, you know, offline about research and kind of areas of research that you all might be interested in because the other area that I know I would fully like to support seek in this work as well, as we've previously discussed that I also really have very much have a passion around advocacy for some legislative changes okay. around both coercive control, consent laws And certainly the work that you all are doing, you know, with the initiation in New York is amazing. And and I'm really looking forward to supporting that in whatever ways I
0: can. That's amazing. Thank you. So your personal story, you know, you have, like I said, you have an interesting personal story that kind of led you into this work. You do talk about it in the first two episodes of your podcast. So I definitely recommend people check out the Project Hope podcast and, your story, I found it, you know, so moving for so many reasons. And I think it's, you know, just hearing more and more of these stories from people is just so important. So again, I highly recommend everybody listen to that. But if you could briefly talk about what your experience with the group that you were involved with is, that would be great.
2: Yeah, I'll do a really high level, Jean. Thank you. Yeah. So I was in a Christian mystical cult. That was, I had been out for 10 years. I was in for 11 years. So I got in in my early 20s. When I entered in, I always like to say, again, just to kind of debunk this idea that, you know, Weaker, stupid people get into right, cult.
0: yes. <laughs> that
2: and certainly that people may enter, of course, with vulnerabilities. But I always like to say it's like at any phase of anyone's life, we're all in a vulnerable state, right? Call it COVID, call it a death in the family. Call, you know, there's such a wide range of reasons in any given moment that we could be
0: vulnerable. In some exactly, way. and I, I think it's important for people to understand, like the word vulnerability isn't equal to weakness, right? It's like you're saying, we're all vulnerable in different ways at different times. So yeah, for sure. Yes.
2: Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out, Jean. It's so true. And, you know, we always say nobody joins a cult. Right. We join a movement. We join a positive healing. We join... A community that's amazing. And slowly, due to unhealthy tactics of influence and control, we find that we were the frog in the boiling water. Mm-hmm. And so also just a word of hope out there for people who might be family members or friends of individuals that they kind of feel like they've lost, but are still alive because individuals are in groups and isolated, that really almost everybody leaves their groups as well. So that is what the research indicates.
0: Yeah, your story was, you know really moving because you talk a lot about how it affected your relationship with your family and it you know it was it was hard to listen to in many ways because it's just heartbreaking to think of losing that time with with family but like you said I I love that the title of your podcast is Project Hope because it really is a hopeful story and that you know you are able were able eventually to mend those relationships and you know to still have those positive relationships in the end so Yeah.
2: Yes. And I am so, so grateful. And, you know, there are a variety, of course, of stories and impacts and mine is one and it happens to be positive. And, you know, some others have very different long lasting impacts that are truly tragic. And as you well know, I mean, to the extent where you know, we end up with people who are severely injured or, you know, possible deaths.
0: Right. Exactly. And that's
2: that's real in this world. So yes, Gene, you really hit kind of the nail on the head that the largest and most devastating impact for me, and also the most psychologically kind of breaking, tearing, was really around this message that I was... Indoctrinated with kind of right from the beginning because of the close relationship that I had with my family. And it really was a very positive relationship in so many ways. And we were very close. And so I think the teachers of my group saw that right away and knew that they kind of had to get in there if I was going to be loyal to yes. them and to the group. And so, you know, I spent. Three years in that struggle ended up not speaking to my family or really, you know, anybody of my past life for eight years. But the fact that that was with my parents, a little more with my brother, but also predominantly eight years being cut off from him as well. And, you know, anybody who knows me and my relationship with my brother, my relationship with my family, you know, it was just shocking. I mean, and so when I left, there was, you know, a whole year, really a very serious processing and healing and reconnection. And, you know, Jean, you and Ginny have just shared so incredibly in your book about Kirby, about Grief and really, grief is a topic that I always, you know, work with survivors around because there is so much, really, to grieve. You know, the things that were lost during those years, the things that could have been, you know, I know like a lot of women who are even still following that leader who I knew when I was there you know, have missed their childbearing years. And I'm sure they have rationalized that in their own minds and feel probably fine about it in that group. My concern, of course, is if and when hopefully they do leave that organization. I mean, that is an incredible grief that they will likely have to face if that was something that, you know, they wanted. So just things like that, that are really, you know, deep impacts that, you know, this, this process of kind of sorting through what happened and really reclaiming also oneself after this experience, because it is so disorienting, you know, kind of how, why. And I think that's a really important journey and exploration to claim not only because through learning, we kind of reclaim ourselves, but also I really see that as a process of protection for the future, because of course, we talk all the time in this field about cult hopping, Right. you know, and I laugh because I'm honestly laughing at myself. I mean, <laughs> I think Jean, you and I talked about this, but it's so funny to me, you know, after I left my group and... I kind of stayed away from spiritual things for maybe a couple years in terms of like live group meeting others stuff. And then as I started that exploration, I was living in New York City, so there was, you know, a plethora of available <laughs> dishes to choose from. Right. And you know, I just have to laugh about it all because of course one of the things I ended up doing you know, probably this was probably five years or so after leaving my group was, I became a certified Kundalini yoga instructor. Right, right. Now know, you know, that really that whole, well, let me say, I don't, I don't want to say that the organization itself is not valid, but the roots stem from Yogi Bhajan, as a leader, you know, that there have been incredible documentation of abuses and violations. Yeah, for really sure.
0: Against. That that stuff is all coming <laughs> coming to light now, I think. Yeah, we're we're on the cusp of that really breaking apart. But yeah, I think this whole idea of cult hopping, you know, like before we were talking about vulnerability, when you get out of a group like this, a group that has shaped your reality for however many years and they really defined your life, that's a point where you're vulnerable again, you know, because you're trying to figure out, okay, if that reality was false, then what is reality? You know, if that was my whole life, then now I have to go make a whole life. So I think that is one of those points where you're completely vulnerable again. And yeah, I think that's why so many people end up doing that, that cult hopping thing. And
2: that's why that If there's a lack of examination around what happened, so again, like education around coercive control, tactics of influence, even just those principles alone are just so helpful for people in terms of that preventative care. And I think really, you're right, that if you don't have those, then what happens is we tend to just have Really, we enter these things, you know, as you have acknowledged, Gene, you know, where these groups or leaders tend to take these good elements of us. And that's kind of the suck in point, or it's the, or it's an area of manipulation that happens, targeted manipulation. And so, really, if we haven't understood what has gone on in that dynamic, then the sincere desires that got us engaged in the first place in the first group, you know, which might be, you know, for me, I can say I, I probably went into my group really for spiritual reasons, like spiritual development. I wanted to deepen. I wanted to refine. I wanted to change. I wanted to be closer to God. And along with that, you know that there were all these side benefits, and of course, everybody has different definitions of what these things would be. But all the side benefits—I mean, I absolutely fell in love with that community. I loved the people that I was with. I loved what we were doing. You know, I loved so much of it. I mean, there were so many elements. I loved the contemplative element. I loved that my life was slowing down and. And that I got real quiet moments. And then, of course, there was massive high productivity <laughs> alongside that. But, you know, you, there are certain things that you focus on that make it all good. And so, really, if you don't examine kind of what's actually happening, then those same elements kind of draw us into other environments. And hopefully, we do have a little bit of a red flag around certain things like. For example, you know, in New York City, I was going, I tried out a Buddhist center for a little while. I loved it. I thought, "Oh, this is at least the place that I can come on Sundays to just feel like I'm kind of having my Sunday church experience again and being quiet time that's really a communion between me and God." And my third time there, Jean, I was like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody in the first two rows are the same people every time. Mm -hmm. And then I started to really pick up on this and I went, oh, I know exactly what this is. These are the actual students. This is a student-teacher relationship. This is the same exact dynamic that I was in before
0: Mm -hmm. where there's
2: a teacher that has authority over the students and all the red flags went off for me, and I right. went, "No way! Any environment like that where people are just submissive or in deferment
1: mm-hmm. to
2: another individual that they believe has a higher knowing? Right? No, I yeah. don't know. You can swear here, Jean.
0: <laughs> you can. Know. You can swear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah." it's it's wild. So eventually, you got out of this group, you kind of bounced around a little bit. And then at some point, you decided that you wanted to do a master's in the psychology of coercive control. So how long from when you got out of the group until you decided to do that?
2: So actually, quite a while. And it's sort of an interesting story to kind of consider why, in some ways. I think... You know, what was happening from the beginning when I left Jean was that there were a number of parents that had kind of gathered together as a support system that all had adult children in this group that I was in. And it was actually my relationship with one of these parents that I've now, you know, had for 10 years who kept saying to me, you have to speak about this. You have to kind of like be out there. Like she was sort of like a little cheerleader for me to be some sort of, you know, microphone for all of this. And honestly, I resisted it for quite a long time. And, you know, when I really thought about why, I think truly it was something around the spiritual identity and not wanting to kind of be the one to, to, say negative things, you know, you sort of go in, but I knew it wasn't about saying negative things. I knew that I probably could do some sort of true education around all of this. And so for years, this, I call her, she's kind of like become a bit of a surrogate mother for me and friend And for years, she was trying to get me to go to these conferences at the International Cultic Studies Association. And so it was actually at my first conference that I received, oh, I guess it was because I attended that conference. I start to receive emails from them. And I got an email about a webinar where these two individuals, Linda and Rod Dubrow-Marshall, Who both have their doctorates, I should say doctor before that, they were presenting about this master's program. And it was, you know, one of these, I've had this kind of happen a few times in life where you sort of hear something and your entire body just goes, Yes, I need to do that. And that was that experience for me. And really from there, everything, you know, just kind of. Took off and unfolded in terms of you know working with survivors, and I also I do work with survivors in a specialized approach that I am certified in, which is actually the bo- a body of work by Jillie Jenkinson, and this is based on almost three decades really of survivor research around individuals who have experienced this type of cultic religious abuse. And I just, I so respect her work. I felt like it was the most thorough education, kind of package of education, psychoeducation that I had ever seen. Also the order in which she put it together is just hugely supportive for people's own process and discovery to unfold. It's also very empowering. And so, you know, for me, it just, it really resonated. And, you know, along with this idea that it was research backed and yet, you know, Jean, I'm sure we'll kind of dive into some of these issues because I am a huge part of my practice is working with survivors of this type of abuse, you know, it's authoritarian abuse. And so that has been very interesting for me in terms of ethical considerations and kind of boundaries, because in this field, I do not want the hierarchy with my clients. And so there are particular things that I kind of do around that. And I think that might tie in a little more to your question around, you know, my appreciation for Seek Safely and the promise.
0: Yeah. So let's get into that. That is something I was interested in. So you signed the Seek Safely promise kind of when you, you know, how did you first discover us?
2: Yeah. So I first discovered you. Probably right after I watched Enlighten Us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I watched it pretty quickly after it came out. So I had I, I had been tracking you guys, you know, I'd been tracking the story, right? So I'm not sure exactly when I came across Seats Safely, but it was definitely a number of years ago, not kind of just recently. And just so appreciated that you all were, you know, took this heavy kind of load to carry and sort through and try to figure out how in a concise way you can present to people so that individuals can really understand what we're looking at or what we're looking And um, again, I just I have such a passion around really clarifying these things because I find and again, in terms of just research talk, you know, in my research in particular that I conducted, I continually found in every single story with every individual that participated in the research, there was some terminology used to describe their inner experience around feeling kind of tangled. You know, it's like people leave these experiences and, and it's confusing. It's like, it's difficult to sort through. And again, you know, a huge part of that is really these tactics of coercion and coercive control, which, you know, I, I love the imagery and the description of coercive control kind of being this invisible spider web you know, that you just, all of a sudden you're in this web and you can't really see it and you can't figure out how to get out. And this tangle, it's like, where's even the end of the string to pull to begin to unravel? I mean, it's just, it can be very layered and complicated. And now I'm off track. I have no idea. What no, that's,
0: that's okay. No, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great image for sure. Yeah. So, after you discovered SEEK and then you decided to, to sign the promise, which is, uh, I'll just quickly relate. We have this SEEK Safely promise. I think we put it out in 20, oh God, I can't even remember. I think it was like 2012 maybe. And it was. it's basically just like not a legally binding thing, but it's just a public commitment that, you know, self-help or you know, anyone in this kind of wellness industry, psychologist, even we have all kinds of people who have signed it, but it's, it's just a commitment that they can make to their customers that they will be, it has six kind of pillars and it's, they will be truthful, accurate, respectful, protective of their clients' emotions that they'll operate with integrity and, that they'll be safe. So yeah, you, you saw the promise and you decided to sign it. And I'm just curious what made you decide to sign it?
2: Yeah. Well, right away, of course, I resonated with it and, you know, uphold that expectation for everybody kind of in industry. Of course, I'm not necessarily doing kind of self-help work, but again, Jean, I felt like, well it's still appropriate and it entirely applies and you know having gone through conducting research and maybe you you're familiar with some of this from you know your master's work and such but conducting research especially i guess when it comes to mental health arenas there is so much ethical process that one needs to go through. So I submitted about 60 pages of ethical documentation. So you've got just layers and layers of ensuring, you know, that people are safe and that materials and everything you're capturing is locked and sealed in privacy. Right, right. right. And so for me, anything that, especially working with survivors that have experienced violation it's something that I'm really very aware of in terms of ethics so you know even on my website I just state who even who I who my supervisors are you know just so things are transparent people can check check all those layers out. But I also, you know, I think to dive in a little bit to just some of the content around the Seek Safely promise, you know, one of the things I can say, Jean, that I will refer back to the promise at different times. And one of those areas, for example, that Seek Safely helped me with is I've been kind of gearing up to offer this healing program for survivors of cult and religious abuse in a group format. And we haven't really done that in this way before. As I was thinking about that, I I went back and looked at Seek Safely to just go, just as a touch in, you know, let me remind and refresh myself. And you know, one of the things that the Seek Safely promise Brought up for me was, oh, around the group program, I am going to do a full refund for individuals if they're not happy. Right? Just how can I really make everything as transparent as possible and also supportive with survivors at the heart of, you know, they are at the heart of everything I do in terms of what I'm considering. And so, You know, also some of the things that I was thinking about in terms of the Seek Safely promise in terms of kind of limitations around interventions, that's also something I really like to talk about and acknowledge whether I'm working with, you know, clients that are coming to me just, you know, for counseling services that might even relate to trauma in some way. If I do make a suggestion around trying out some sort of implementation of something in life, like a grounding exercise when there's social anxiety happening, I always try to use language where it gives the individual room for that not to be the right solution for them and for them to be... because my hope for everyone that I work with and even in my friendships is we all give each other the respect to hear and to hear different opinions, to be different ways. And that that really is a foundation of respect. And so in terms of even with my clients, it's been very interesting because gene in particular working with survivors who have experienced you know authoritarian structures have experienced power over by other individuals that was actually something also when i was looking at the seek safely promise around boundaries where i realized what i do with clients is different than normal therapy. And so I will talk about right from the beginning that I welcome my clients to challenge any information that I'm giving them, even if it's research-based, right? Because I've come in saying that this is research-based. But even that, we know that science changes, research changes, we discover new things. So that's a great foundation But my goal is always to support and direct the individual to truly get to know themselves. And I see everything that we do as kind of an experiment that they get to determine if that felt right, if it was helpful, if it feels like the right thing, or if they sense that there's something else that would work a little differently. And so I give them options and it's a collaborative process, my experience with clients and always a direction back to what they sense in themselves as being healthy or right or feels good to them with the understanding also that that may change. So a real flexibility, but also, again, back to that respect, you know, that we're really in this respect that we all have the ability to grow and change and that the best knower of oneself is that individual.
0: Yeah, that's so important. We often tell people, you know, to kind of put themselves at the center of their seeking journey and remember that, you know, they are their own guru, right? That you're the one in charge that any benefit you derive from any program or teacher, it's still down to you and your effort. And to always kind of keep yourself centered and not kind of give yourself away to a teacher or a group or a program. We feel like that's, you know, kind of a simple way of summing, Up this whole issue and trying to keep people, you know, remembering this while they're moving through this kind of work that again, can really open you up to somebody who's trying to tell you that there is a right answer, or there is one way to do things. So I love this idea of you being very clear that I'm going to give you something, but it might not be right for you. And that's okay. Because we see so much of that definitely in groups that are absolutely culty groups, but even with other wellness providers or self-help providers where they're really trying to sell this idea that I have the answer. There's not another answer. I have the answer. And that's why you have to pay me <laughs> and listen to me. Right. And, you
2: know, I mean, here's the thing, Jean, time and time and time again, I find mm-hmm. if I give my clients a couple suggestions that of course, me being connected to myself, in care for them, hopefully I'm getting something that's, you know, a pretty decent suggestion for Mm -hmm. them. Right. But I'll always give them a couple options. And then I'll use that also where we get to kind of be still and go like, as I share this with you, how does that feel in your body and how does it land? As I share this other option with you, How does that feel in your body and how does it land? And they know, they know which one one or the other feels better to them. And then I also give the permission of like, and we chose, you know, you chose this one and this is a little experiment for the next week or two. And then we'll see how that goes. And it can always change. And if you feel like you want to try on the other option, do that, you know, it's like, let's free things up around getting to know oneself. It's not about this right and wrong or doing something, doing a technique perfectly so it heals you completely.
0: Right. And that's amazing too, because I imagine it's also part of training the person to trust their own intuition again.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah,
0: because so many of these groups, I mean, we saw this in The Sweat Lodge, you know, James Ray was telling people you're gonna feel this way, but that's not really that's not really right. And you just need to overcome that feeling. And I think abusive teachers are doing that all the time. They're telling people to ignore their gut and to ignore their intuition. And that can really, you know, put people in a dangerous place. So yeah, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, and Jean, you know, if I could loop back around to what you said because this has actually, what you said here has landed for me in actually a pretty profound way. I think that the way that you actually kind of phrase this and present it, where you say, like, it sounds simple, right? Mm -hmm. Environments to remember that you are responsible for yourself and for your experience and that the goodness that comes was from you. And maybe someone suggested something, supported it, but that experience is yours. It's between you and whatever it is that you're connecting with, right? And I love the way you put it. I think I think the terminology that feels a little new to me, that we don't hear a lot is when you say that you are responsible for yourself. And I think that's actually the terminology because even when we're educating around cult stuff, I mean, Jean, when I was in my group, the two leaders presented an entire list to us of what makes a cult a cult. And they went through each point and debunked it so that we not only had that argument in our head, but now we were given those bullet points so that anytime we got questioned, we could also share that with others. And that's not just about protecting the group and spreading the the good news that we're not a cult and getting that out there. That's also an internal reinforcement in every single member that they're saying over and over again how we're not a cult. right.
0: right? Oh, it's unbelievable! So many of the groups do that. Yes, I know that in in Nexium they say that as well. Like it's crazy. So
2: here is the thing: this is where that is so insidiously kind of malevolent. Mm -hmm. Is that people can say lots of things that sound good. All the language, you know, it can sound really loving. You know, everything those teachers said. I took it in and I adopted that. And that helped me to rebut also my personal fears that of like this being weird or something a little off. So this is where I think when we're trying to educate, it gets a little messy at times, right? Because somebody who's in a a group right now would listen to us talking and go, I'm totally, I'm in, I'm being empowered. I'm this, I'm, you know, I'm doing what I want to do. So what is it that can be given to somebody to almost like drop into something that's more of a personal experience or sense that, that we can connect to that makes it actually real? And I think what you say around kind of we are responsible for ourselves, that shifts everything for me when I hear that. You know, that if somebody because everybody's focusing on the group or the teachings or the leader, you know, that, that what that is and the arguments around that. But if you really bring it back to the individual and go, you should always feel that you are responsible for everything that's happening and that you're kind of doing in this system And then you get to, I I think that's the avenue to one's own voice. So, but it's very, you know, again, it's so layered. It does get really complicated, but I love the way you describe it that way, that if somebody can really feel and sense, do I truly, because people would say to me, you know, around this kind of brainwashing thing, whatever those arguments were toward me, I really felt like no, like, I'm really empowered now. I'm running, a, I'm running a whole center. I'm, you know, managing major amounts of activities in my life. I mean, I am higher up in the group, so I have an element of authority. I mean, I really kind of thought I had those things. But if I had really grounded into, wait a second this life is my responsibility. I may have shifted a little, something may have shifted internally a little bit that just wasn't shifted by the other arguments, so to
0: speak. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so in doing all of this work that you've done now with other people and other survivors and families, I mean, have you found that healing for yourself too? Or were you kind of already over the healing and you were ready to just kind of share or how has it been for you?
2: Yeah, such a good question. I always think of healing as, as like a lifetime journey. Yeah. yeah, But more specifically, I think to your question around these elements, I have found personally, and then also survivor research does show this, that a huge part of the healing also comes from the psychoeducation alone, right? So understanding some things around identity we work with, we work with understanding how to evaluate the beliefs or behaviors that were outside of us that we took in that just don't quite sit right and how we can challenge those things to kind of evaluate is that something I want to integrate into my authentic identity today or not? And then those that identity is something that we're constantly revisiting as we journey through this kind of psychoeducation, right? Where we're really learning about these tactics of manipulation and influence and all of that. For me, and we talk about how the psychoeducation is kind of one component, The other thing that, you know, certain survivors have is trauma. And so typically we do the psychoeducational component first because often even just that creates so much healing, right? This is where like information truly is power. You know, it's like you see these dynamics and the way they work and you just, the whole castle starts to crumble. You know, you realize all that you were not responsible for that you've been taking on, all the shame that you got duped, you know, all these things start to kind of just crumble. And then, you know, we're also left at times with, trauma or you know leftover debris from these things honestly jean i find i have healing that continues to happen from things that my clients share with me from reading your book and seeing another layer from a different perspective and going Ooh, I resonate with that. What's there for me? You know, it's like it it really does feel like kind of an endless process. You know, I've even seen things in working with survivors where somebody, for example, who is a multi-generational survivor, so her base was kind of in a fundamentalist Christian experience that was abusive. In that environment, she had generations of family members in that. Now, while she left at 18 in her rebellious years and kind of broke free, did what she wanted to do, uh, never went back, but continued, you know, as life phases also, you know, as we transition through life phases, we transition through different experiences. And so, you know, she went through major experimentation time and breaking free and so on and so forth. And then starting a family. Well, long story short, my real point is captured in this. She's now in her fifties. And as we were speaking, she said to me, you know, you're not going to believe this, but literally in this decade of my life, it's the first time that I have seen a connection that the unhealthy relationships that I have been in one on one with men is a direct result of the grooming that I had in that group and that belief system. And that there were certain concepts that I still held on to that have resulted in these negative relationships with men. And I I said to her, thank you so much, you know, because it's like, she is one of the ones now, again, as we start to learn more and more, and really all all this stuff has only been studied really in the past three decades, you know? So it's a new-ish field, new-ish information. And I said to her, Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing that, you know, publicly, because I think it's also really important for this younger generation to realize that these these connections that are tied in to that history or that experience unfold decades later, mm-hmm. and that's okay, yeah. and that's going to happen, you know? Right
0: jennifer and i had so much to chat about so this is part one of two episodes be sure to listen to the rest in part two
1: you can learn more about seek safely's mission and values or get involved yourself at SeekSafely.org. You can follow and connect with Seek Safely on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow me, Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle, for psychology, trauma, and advocacy content on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, Seek Safely.